0: They said it's not a matter of if we leave the ACC, it's a matter of when and how. So that's not my words, that's their words. How do they get to that $120 million number and can they get there earlier? And if they can, is it Big Ten or is it SEC? Hello, welcome to Always College Football. It is Monday, August 7th. We hope that you're enjoying the show, wherever it is you're coming to us from, whether it's ESPN's YouTube channel or if you're here with the podcast, we appreciate you so much. We have a great show in store for you today. We're going to get into conference realignment, but we're not going to go into it as heavy or as deep. We're not going to speculate on this and speculate on that and talk about the financials and all this other stuff. I'm going to tell you why it's good for the Big 10. I'm going to tell you why it's great for Washington and Oregon. I'm going to tell you why it's great for the Big 12. I'm going to tell you why it has absolutely nothing to do with the ACC. And I'm going to tell you about a ridiculous rumor about the Pac-4 and the ACC aligning that needs to just completely go away. It's ridiculous. We have so appreciated all of you for liking, rating, and subscribing to the podcast and leaving the reviews, man. It means a lot. We don't have a marketing budget here at Always College Football. Your word of mouth is what we need. So I just wanted to give a shout out to a couple of people that are doing the Lord's work by pushing our podcast and letting them know that, hey, we're going to talk about college football and get you prepared for the season every single day. Connecticut Spartan, SoFla Bama, uh, Alant 78, Allergy Man, Dim 225, surreal life. Who's really mad at us, by the way, saying that we didn't talk about Kalen DeBoer in our year two coaches, but surreal life, we did, man. Just go one episode before. One episode before, but We talked a lot. He, he was in the top tier group of first year coaches that we had alongside, you know, uh, Sonny Dykes and Lincoln Riley and Kalen Abor was right there, my friend. But we so appreciate you. Please keep the reviews coming and please continue rating the podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. All right. It's a reluctant topic. I'm not going to lie. I don't love talking about it, but it is a necessary evil. It's Big Ten, Pac-12, Pac-4, Big 12, ACC conference realignment discussion. What does this mean for college football? Well, in case you've been under a rock for the last 72 hours and knowing our listener base, that's probably pretty dang unlikely. I was refreshing Twitter over and over and over again on Thursday night, Friday, you name it. I mean, we are just rolling, trying to figure out the information for what could come up with the Big Ten. Ultimately, here's what's gone down. Oregon and Washington moving to the Big Ten. Great move for them. I'll explain why in just a minute. We all know that both Arizona, Arizona State, and Utah have now also decided to go to the Big 12. Great news for them. Pac-12, four teams remain, now affectionately known as the Pac-4. What's next for Oregon State, Cal, Stanford, and Washington State? Really a tough spot for them. I feel terrible for them, but this is... I'm not going to say there's a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel, but I'll get to that here in just a moment. There are a couple options that people are putting forth. We'll basically say whether or not we think it could happen, couldn't happen, what have you. But here's where we're going to start. We're going to start with the Big Ten. Now, the Big Ten, when you think about what they've added, okay. when you think about the brands that are potentially available to whether the SEC or the Big Ten, there's nobody that it's going to deny the strength of both Washington and Oregon's brand. In 15 consecutive seasons, from 2008 to 2022, Oregon has produced one of the best ratings. This is according to Bill Connolly, their SP plus rating, which he, I think he does an amazing job of assessing where teams stand as far as strength, wins, all these other things. They were in really the top really the top of the world kind of at least, you know, six, seven times in those 15, 16 seasons, their top 10 program. So Oregon has competed for national championships, played in multiple national championship games, has been a threat to get to the playoff on multiple different occasions, has had to endure a bunch of different coaching turnover, but it appears like things are heading in the right direction now with Dan Lanning, who's locked up until 2029. They are so obvious when it comes to, to whether or not they should be considered. Also Washington, also the last Pac-12 team to make the college football playoff back in 2016, but they have been a perennial fixture as well, and they have ranked in the top eight nine times, nine times in the last however many years. So it's been quite a while, Since Washington has been a complete afterthought, with the exception of that two year blip where things didn't look very good. But Coach Pete did a great job with them. And it appears like Kalen DeBoer is going to do an amazing job with them as well. This was a no brainer, especially when you take into account the financials. And we don't know the financials just yet. We are using different resources, and people have made prognostications, and people have said, here's what it is, and here's what. It sounds like, kind of trying to get an assessment and that if these numbers are just slightly off, so be it, you understand where I'm coming from. The average Big Ten payout's gonna be north of $70 million per school. Well, you're getting Oregon and Washington for 30 million a year, roughly, and then that increases $1 million per year up until the end of this original deal. And at that point, they will become full members and they'll make more money on the back end. So if you were to average it out and you listen to what Rob Mullins has said and what the Washington president said, other people have said, they've said, well, on a 10-year average, remember this Big Ten deal lasts for seven seasons, on a 10-year average, the average distribution for both Oregon and Washington will be 50 million dollars, but that's what they really backloaded new deal starting in 2030 or so. So this is going to work out great for them financially. It's considerably better what what they would have gotten in the Pac-12. And for the Big 10, you get to get a couple of great brands on sale. This is win-win-win. The only people that lose in this are obviously the Pac-12 teams that are left behind. Let's also talk about the other benefit To this, we've talked already about the challenges of traveling and how that would have, I think, I think that's going to take its toll. I think it would have taken its toll even more significantly for USC and UCLA because now, in an eight game conference schedule, in addition to them playing each other, right? Like we know UCLA and USC are going to play every year together. So, in the other eight games, four of which are going to likely be traveling cross-country or across multiple time zones. Now, you can move into a scenario in which you have that nine-game conference schedule as a whole, and then you'll have those permanent rivals between Washington, Oregon, USC, and UCLA. So now, as opposed to four cross-country trips, you now only have three. You think, well, what's the big difference there? Is it that big of a deal? Maybe not. Maybe so. We don't know yet because we've never seen movement and travel schedule like this in modern day college football. So I still think this is a really important coup for the Big Ten in order to minimize the challenges. You're never going to minimize them. It's, it's a reality of what you have to deal with. But at least it's one less game. In some cases, two less games where you're having to travel significant distances into different time zones, what have you. So I think it's a good move as far as the logistics are concerned for not just the football programs, but for other sports as well. So... There is not a single downside here if you're in the Big 10, and there is not a single downside here if you're Oregon and Washington. This is a phenomenal move for you. It gives you stability long-term, and it gives you earning potential here six, seven years from now until we will be back at or near the top of the college football landscape. Let's talk about the Big 12 move. The money obviously will not be as significant in the Big 12 as it is in the Big 10. But if you're Arizona State, if you're Arizona, if you are Utah, I'm kind of almost want to remove Utah a little bit from that conversation because Utah has been competing already at the top of college football, has almost gotten to the playoff on multiple occasions, has been within striking distance of the top four teams, and has been a steady power in college football in the last 20 years. I'm talking about a team with multiple undefeated seasons, with multiple New Year's six wins with multiple Rose Bowl appearances. We haven't seen that from Arizona. We haven't seen that from Arizona State, and we certainly haven't seen that from Colorado. Utah, this is a perfect move for you because you now get to reunite your rivalry, even though the rivalry had never really gone away, but now it's going to move into a conference in the Big 12 where you're going to be able to go toe-to-toe for conference supremacy. That is important. And right now, tell me a program right now in the big 12, that has been more steady than Utah in the last decade. Now I know TCU, very strong argument to be made on their behalf. Oklahoma State has certainly had some years. UCF has certainly had some years. Cincinnati has certainly had some years, but none have played the schedule that Utah's played and still remained at the top of college football. Utah, I think, steps right in and is at worst top two or three in the entire league as far as annual quality. So that's a no-brainer for them. But now if you're Arizona and Arizona State, not only are you going to make way more money, but you got to bring your friend with you, even though I know they're enemies, but your friend, because the Board of Regents in Arizona said, hey, either one goes or both go or no go. Well, they're both going to go. And If you think about what Arizona and Arizona State have done for a long time, Arizona State more specifically, dating back to when Todd Graham was there, a couple other coaches, they have really tried to get into the state of Texas and recruit at a high level. That has been a real high priority. Now, Todd Graham more so than most of the coaches since, but partly because Todd Graham had Texas roots. But they've always felt like Arizona, if they can get to Dallas, if they can get to Houston, that's going to be really beneficial to both Arizona State and to Arizona as far as their recruiting powers. Now they don't have to go west all the time. They can go east and they can keep some of those great players at home by having that power five moniker next to their name. So I think it's really important and it's a win-win in a lot of ways for Arizona. Now, what does it do to the strength and the depth of the Big 12? Because that's a question that I continue to ask myself. You already add one of the best programs in America and Utah. You're going to say one of the best programs in America and never been to the playoff. All right, but steady Eddie, man. You know what you're going to get when you add the Utah Utes. What does it do for the rest of the football product? Does it water it down a little bit? I don't think so. I mean, really, yeah, you look at recent history, maybe not as good, but Arizona State's had some big years. Arizona State back 10 years ago was a big time power in college football. They were doing a lot of really good things under Todd Graham. But yeah, it's fallen off maybe just a little bit, but hopefully with the the addition of Kenny Dillingham, hopefully with what Jed Fish continues to do at Arizona, it does appear like maybe the arrow's pointing up for each of those two programs, we already know what Deion Sanders is hopefully going to do at Colorado. The arrow seems to be pointing up already. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see how this impacts the quality of the play from top to bottom in the Big 12. I think it's a step in the right direction. What does this mean for the future, though, of college football? What does this mean for future realignment? And like I've said, Mon, man, we're we're two weeks away, three weeks away from college football games being played. I don't want to spend all day talking about realignment. I want to talk about games, matchups, win totals, what have you. And we're going to do that here in just a minute. But we have to look at what this could mean for Florida State, Clemson, and others in the ACC. Because with these moves already being made, if you look at the ACC – there is a big significant date on when the ACC schools have to notify the ACC of them potentially leaving the conference. That date is just seven days from now, eight days from now, if you will, on August 15th. Keep an eye on that date. You already heard a little bit about what Florida State did. Florida State, by their estimation, they need to pay $120 million exit fee, and they have to come up with a strategy to get out of their grant of rights. Now, I don't know about Florida State's financial situation, but $120 million seems like an awful lot. So what did they decide to do? They went and hired Morgan Chase. They went and hired private equity to maybe help them figure out a way to bridge the gap from their inevitable exit in their eyes. This, I, these are not my words. You listen to Drew Weatherford last week, who's on the board at Florida State. They said, it's not a matter of if we leave the ACC, it's a matter of when and how. So that's not my words, that's their words. How do they get to that $120 million number and can they get there earlier? And if they can, is it Big Ten or is it SEC? So a lot that still could be meant for the ACC schools, especially here in the next eight days. Keep it locked in here. We'll keep you updated with what might happen as it relates to the Seminoles and the trickle-down effect that that might have on the rest of the ACC schools. And then finally, I saw a very ludicrous a very ludicrous report. I'm not even going to cite who it's from, but I just want to bring it to your attention because I found it somewhat outrageous. I'm just... i You tell me. You tell me what adjective you would use when you hear this possibility. The PAC-4 will talk with the ACC about a possible merger. The ACC legal team feels that additions Stanford, Cal, Oregon State, and Washington State could open the door for a better deal with ESPN while keeping Florida State and Clemson happy. That to me is ludicrous. We're talking about the Pacific Athletic Conference, the West Coast, and the ACC, the Atlantic Coast Conference. Sorry, but we have to, to a certain extent, Acknowledge the lunacy of that. (laughs) Could it happen? Maybe. Nothing would surprise me at this point. Honestly, nothing would surprise me. But we just talked about the logistical issues of the Big Ten and adding Oregon and Washington and how that'd be really beneficial just so they don't have to travel four multi-time zone games away a year. Well, now we're discussing the possibility of a merger or some type of scheduling alliance between Stanford, Cal, Oregon State, and Washington State with ACC schools and that, hey, you know what, Florida State, I know you're thinking about leaving. I know you're thinking about leaving. And I, look, we don't want you to leave. We want you here in the ACC. We think you're a, a great institution. You're a great program. Let's sweeten the deal with you. We're going to let you play home and home games every year with Stanford. Is that, that going to get you to stay? The answer is absolutely not. So, I don't even know why these things are even coming to the forefront right now. But, hey, it's out there. I wanted to keep you up to speed on it. I didn't want you to be left in the dark in case that magical alliance does, in fact, come to fruition. I don't think it will, y'all. I don't see it. I don't see it happening. But keep a close eye on that August 15th date for Florida State and all the ACC schools. Also, continue to acknowledge that the Big Ten – has done a really great job with this whole process. They could have paid top dollar for Oregon and Washington, but they were patient. They say, you know, we'll wait for them to go on sale. They did. They played it correctly. And now they have that West Coast presence that I think will be beneficial to them down the road. The Big 12 also need to give them a huge round of applause as well. Because them being able to take advantage of what we thought might be a little bit of a decent deal from Apple. We thought it was going to be a decent deal. It turned out it wasn't. There was no linear aspect of it. So the Big 12 pounced the second it could possibly pounce. Where's the Pac-12 go? They're in a tough spot for sure. But you got to think that George Klyovkov, he's got to do something because this thing seems to be getting away from him very quickly. Go to JetsPizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza, better because it has to be. And now for important matters. Business matters are out of the way. We we have to discuss realignment. There's interest in it. People are fired up about it. It's understandable. It's a very hot-button topic. I don't like it. (laughs) I don't at all. I understand it's a necessary evil. I want to talk about teams, man. I want to talk about players. I want to talk about upside, teams improving, win totals, coaches. What can they do in year number two to get things going in the right direction? Because that's where we're going to focus today. We're going to talk about three very proud programs and what they need to do to get back on track, especially now that we've done our due diligence on the realignment aspect of College football. So can we dive into some ball for a moment? Will you indulge? Let's go. All right. Brent Venables, Oklahoma. Brent Venables, Oklahoma. I sat here last uh, fall, if you will, late summer, early fall, said, y'all, I really, really want things to work out for Brent Venables in year number one. I do. I really want that for him. I like Brent Venables, have covered Brent Venables for the better part of the last eight years. I respect the heck out of him. I respect the heck out of the Oklahoma program. But there is a little bit of an unknown right now. There's a little bit of an unknown because we've seen Brent Venables do amazing things with Clemson's defense. But running his own show in the midst of a lot of turnover would have been significant challenge for just about anybody. That's a tough spot to be in. Especially when you're inheriting a program that has won double-digit conference championships, inheriting a program that has played for multiple national championships, inheriting a program that had won multiple Heisman trophies, inheriting a program that had dominated their league for the better part of the last two decades. So it was going to be a difficult, I think, a difficult thing to anticipate him stepping right in and the program's better. It just wasn't going to happen. But I don't think any of us could have envisioned them slipping back to the first losing season since 1998, the first three-game losing streak since 1998, the first time without consecutive 10-win seasons since 1998, their worst shutout loss since 1945. We all know the low points, right? I don't need to... uh, Oklahoma fans know the low points. They know the talking points and it's understandable. There's a lot of reasons to be disappointed with how things went, especially when you take into account that you've won 18 or 18 double digit seasons since 20, since 2000. That is pretty dang remarkable, but here's the positive. Here's the positive. I am really optimistic about where he's going. Now, I can't sit here and tell you without a shadow of a doubt that we're going to look back at Oklahoma and say, hey, man, this is the recruiting class that flipped it. This is the recruiting class that made their presence known. But, man, I feel so much more optimistic today than I did even a year ago. Because a year ago, it was like, man, this is tough. I mean, they, they just lost such a great coach. They just lost their quarterback. Now I'm really optimistic because I feel like they've gathered themselves. And I know that Oklahoma Sooners fans don't want to think that last year was rock bottom. I think it might have been. I think now the arrow is going to be pointing up for the foreseeable future. Now, the win totals and all these other things that people are trying to point to, is it going to be easy for them to get there? Probably not. It's probably going to be pretty tricky. It's probably going to be pretty tricky, but I am really optimistic. Let's go through the schedule just a little bit, okay? Let's just go through the schedule and let's find some losses because I think this team has a chance to be a player. A lot of people think there's no way they're going to be able to catch TCU in Texas and the other schools, Texas Tech and the Big 12. I think they can very well find themselves in the Big 12 championship. I really believe that because I think about what they did as far as their high school recruiting class. I think about what they did as far as Eight of their top 10 prospects that they signed in their high school recruiting class coming on the defensive side. I think nine overall, or the number nine overall transfer class in college football, which includes six immediate starters off of other power five defenses has me feeling really optimistic about the direction of this program, because it was obvious what their, what their issues were, what their deficiencies were. And the offense took a little while to take hold. And guess what? When you lose your quarterback, it's hard to win. I mean, with all due respect to the backup quarterback situation, when Dylan Gabriel wasn't available there in the middle of the season, it wasn't going to be the same. And he looked even a little bit hobbled at times after the fact. So I'm really optimistic about where they're going. I think they are going to be back in the mix. Maybe not in the playoff mix this year, but I think they have a chance to be very, very dangerous. Let's go through the schedule, all right? Arkansas State should be a win. SMU, be careful. Be careful with SMU, but that should be one that you get taken care of. At Tulsa, we know Tulsa's going to be juiced for that one, but I'm not overly concerned about what Tulsa brings at this point. I look at the road game to Cincinnati. Those of we have already talked about, I think that could be one where Cincinnati comes back to the earth just a little bit, just a little bit. Back to earth early. So I think Oklahoma can get that one. Now we're looking at a situation. Man, you're 4-0. Things look pretty good. Iowa State's coming to you. Iowa State in Norman. I'm going to lean with the Sooners at the moment. You could be 6-0 heading to the Red River rivalry. That's a pretty good spot to be in. Now, Texas, I think it might be just a little bit further ahead. But things look really good, I think, for, for Oklahoma in the first half of their season. Now, the back half gets a little bit more difficult. I think you could be six and one coming out of that Texas game. UCF at home. At home, I feel good about it. If you're in the bounce house, going to be tough, but I feel good about that possibility. How about at Kansas, at Oklahoma State? Two very difficult games. If you get a split there, you got to feel good about it. If you're Oklahoma, you know that Kansas, maybe not the most hostile environment, but a difficult offense to play against and a group that could cause some problems for you. And we know Oklahoma State, they're going to have that one circled for sure based on what you've heard from Mike Gundy in the offseason. Tell me they haven't been circling that one. I think they probably have. West Virginia at home, that should be one you get. TCU at home in the last game of the year, that should be one that I think will be a bit of a toss-up, but I like your chances in that game as well. And then the road trip that is sandwiched by those two aforementioned games to BYU. Be careful. Going to be cold. Could be some elements. Going to be at altitude. BYU is a very physical football team. I don't want to catch them late. So that's one of the more interesting games on the schedule. But as we go through it, tell me it's out of possibility that Oklahoma is sitting at 9-3. and three. I mean, I think it's a very real possibility. I'm not trying to drink the Sooner Kool-Aid, but I would be surprised if this team limped to the finish like they did at times last year. They're going to bounce back, and they're going to be better on defense. they got to stay healthy, but I am cautiously optimistic about year number two, Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's go to year number two for another coach that really disappointed last season. That would be Billy Napier at the University of Florida. Now, they're getting it done on the recruiting trail. We already know they're getting it done on the recruiting trail. Better than it's been, it feels like, in quite some time. Last year on the recruiting trail, they did a pretty dang good job. 18 of their 20 prospects were either four or five stars, and they placed number six in America. It's a pretty good spot to be in. They've done a good job as far as keeping players at home, even though that had been something that had been challenging the last few years. They're making it a high priority to keep that homegrown talent in one of the fastest, most athletic states in the country. Keeping them at home and keeping them aligned with the Gators is of the utmost importance. Think about what last year was. Come out of the gates on fire. You beat Utah everybody's roaring. All of a sudden, all the pressure goes to Florida, man. Could they be a player? Could Anthony Richardson be in the Heisman mix? And then it all came crashing back to earth last year against Kentucky in week number two. So they rode the highest of the highs for about six days and then it all came crashing down. But you think about where they're at. I mean, Anthony Richardson, for as gifted and as led as he was, he wasn't very steady. He was pretty up and down. Yeah, he always had the possibility of a 75-yard run where he could take off and go the distance. But he also had the possibility of missing easy throws or not, going, or not throwing a touchdown pass for 13 quarters. I mean, Those are possibilities. So you think about the performances against, say, Texas A&M, and you think about the performances against South Carolina, both of which completely dominant. Then you think about the performance of Vanderbilt. It's like, where the, heck, where the heck was that? With this group now, I don't think the offensive line is going to be a strength. That's my concern. I am optimistic about Graham Mertz. I do believe that this offense, and people have said, well, Graham Mertz, did you watch him at Wisconsin? Yeah, but go watch his first game. The kid's talented. I just think the weight of the world was on his shoulders. Hey, you're the first five-star recruit in Wisconsin football history at quarterback you're going to be able to be the one that elevates the program and the pressure got to the point where it just wore on him too much. Plus, he was a product of COVID. They didn't have to practice, didn't get the development that he probably should have gotten. And as a result, he was thrown out sink or swim mode and it didn't go very well. But when you think about where they're at, it's really the first time that Florida last year lost to all four of their rivals in the same season. Florida State, Georgia, Tennessee, and LSU. In the process, they gave up 42 points a game, not ideal. Here's the big problem is that all four of those rivals are likely to be ranked in the top 15. I already referenced FSU, Georgia, Tennessee, and LSU. All those teams are going to be in the top 15. So the schedule will be insanely difficult. But when you start to think about where those young players are fitting in, I think this year could be a bit of a dip before Florida takes off because the recruiting is extremely, extremely strong. At Utah week one, going to be a really tough game. McNeese, got to get that one. Tennessee at home. That game's been strange in the past, but Tennessee's program is further ahead right now. Charlotte at home. Probably going to start two and two if we're going to be completely honest. At Kentucky, that's that's a really difficult game. Kentucky's going to be fired up. They have your number last year. They've played well. You know that's a big one for Kentucky. I think that could be a tricky one. Can you get revenge against Vanderbilt at home? That, I think, has a chance to be a win, and he took care of business against South Carolina last year, but now it's on the road, and it could be a really tough spot heading into your bye week. And then down the stretch, my goodness, it's a brutal, brutal slate for the Florida Gators. Georgia's in Jacksonville. Arkansas's at home. That's one you absolutely have to win if you're going to get to bowl eligibility. At LSU, one of the best teams in America going to be a tough win. LSU's beaten them 10 times in the last 13 years. Can Florida potentially steal one on the road? It's possible, but it's probably unlikely, at least at this point. Here's the one I hate more than anything else at Missouri there on November 18th. You know it's going to be cold, Florida, going up to Columbia, Missouri, where it could be snowing, not a recipe for great success. And then finally, you finish up at home against Florida State. Win total is five and a half. I don't feel good about it. Gator fans, I do not feel good about it, but let's hope. It's some of the young players that are playing on this roster. They get a lot of great experience. They get calloused as a result of this experience, and they're going to be tougher down the road because of the early playing time that they receive. Then you infuse even more talent with the recruiting class signing here in December and you could be off and running. So just hang in there. If they can get to bowl eligibility, you should feel great about it this year if you are a Gator fan. Let's go south just a little bit to talk about the Gators' rival. Even though they're not really rivals, I still consider them rivals. Any of the three teams playing in the great state of Florida, they're rivals. Florida-Miami, FSU-Miami, Miami-Florida-Florida State, those are rivals to me. And for Mario Cristobal, things have to get turned around this year. The win total is 7.5, but I look at last year, man, and it was really disappointing. They're the consensus pick coming into the season. They had really kind of looked at a position where, man, this team could, you know, the Mario Cristobal comes down. They get that offensive line going a little bit. They got a great quarterback in Tyler Van Dyke, and it was really ugly. You get blown out by giving up a million plays to Middle Tennessee. It was really ugly. You give up 20-plus points. Uh, you're losing by 20-plus points in four losses, including getting absolutely drubbed by Florida State. The offense had just 98 yards against Clemson, and they lost five straight at home for the first time in 60 years. So we're talking about a historically bad season for Mario Cristobal, but here's the good news. Look at the recruiting. They did a great job going out and signing quality high school class, and then they go out, back it up by signing an even better transfer class, came in at number seven in the country with the transfer that they were able to bring in. They also go out and hire, I think, two difference-making offensive coordinators in Shannon Dawson and Lance Guidry. Shannon Dawson comes from Houston but has that air raid background where they're going to stretch the field. Really takes shots a lot downfield, and this is kind of becoming the offense de jour. Washington State is running an offense that's somewhat similar to this. Tennessee's been running it for a while. Oklahoma's been running it for a while. We've seen this offense start to get implemented just about everywhere. SMU's doing it. A lot of people are starting to do this offense. TCU did it last year. Clemson's doing it this year. This is the offense du jour in college football. And Shannon Dawson, I think, is going to get the most out of Tyler Van Dyke. The talent, he didn't just forget how to throw. right. He just was in a really bad system fit for what he needed to do to feel comfortable. I think he bounces back in a big way this year. And they brought weapons in that should help that transition as well. And then Lance Guidry on the defensive side, very optimistic with what he was able to do last year. Man, if you watch what Gidry did at Marshall, man, this guy is attacking. He understands how to get his guys to play at a ridiculously high level as far as intensity is concerned. So I'm excited to see what he's going to do with this opportunity because I think this mix could be really advantageous for an athletic front seven and a pretty decent secondary down there in South Florida. So I think this, chance, this team has a chance to be pretty dis- disruptive. Win total seven and a half. Let's see if we can find five losses, huh? I think, we, I think we're going to struggle too, I might add. I'm in Ohio, that should be a win. Texas A&M at home is a toss-up game. Let's put that one in the question mark category right now. Bethune, that should be a win as well. At Temple, you're at worst 3-1 and one, heading to your bye week. Georgia Tech comes to you. That should be a game that you should be able to win. You go to North Carolina, tricky one. Let's put this one in the uncertain category as well. Clemson at your place, probably not going to happen this year. Virginia at your place, that should be a win. Right now we have three possible losses. We'll put them as question marks. I really think the only one that's a guaranteed loss right now is the Clemson game, but it's worth noting, at least at the moment, that that thing could flip. Who knows? Especially if Miami gets off to a pretty fast start. At NC State, it will be a tough game for sure, but one that you would hope that you could possibly win. At Florida State, that's going to be a tricky one, I think, for you as well. Louisville at your place, that could be the most important game on the schedule if you're focusing in on the over-under. Because right now, we're at four possible losses a and North Carolina, Clemson, NC State, Florida State is five. Louisville would be six, obviously, if you lose every single one of those games, which I find hard to believe. Every single one of those toss-up games is a loss. I'm not buying that. But either way, you're sitting there four, maybe five. And if you get Boston College on the road, which I think you'll get, then you should be in a position where you might be going to that 8-4 and win plateau in the final game of the year. So Miami, I think it's a chance to bounce back. If I had to take it, I'd take the over. I think this team will be talented. I think they'll be improved on both sides of the ball, and there'll be better collective buy-in for everybody seeing just how sideways last season went. That'll do it for us here at Always College Football. Please continue, like we've asked so many times, to like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. man. It means the world to us. Our ratings have gone up like 25% since we started asking them, and they're almost all five stars. So we so appreciate you guys. You have no idea how much it means to us to know that we get to talk college football with you guys every day, and you're there helping us push the product the way that you have the last couple of weeks. We will continue to deliver for you, I promise. Going to continue to do win totals. Going to continue to dive into potential dark horses in the college football world. That's coming up a little later this week. We also are going to have some big guests coming up in the next couple of weeks as well to help break down the bigger picture for college football here in 2023. For all of us here at Always College Football, for Mark, Jake, Jack, I'm Greg. We hope you have a wonderful day. And remember, it's Always College Football.